Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're visiting with us, we have been working our way through Luke's gospel, and we're in the middle of sort of a two-week two, two uh, side detour into uh, Matthew as it uh, speaks of the early childhood of Jesus. We've been walking through his life consecutively, and so uh, we come uh, this morning to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 uh, through 23. This is God's Word. Matthew writes, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known anyone who rarely does anything in simple fashion? but always seems to make everything more complicated than it needs to be. It can be very confusing to watch this person or even to live with this person. It can be exasperating, right? To watch uh, their, their life, even, even if you uh, are watching it from afar, but especially if their complication uh, causes you to experience complication, right? Now, let's be honest, we've all been this person before. And if you're a Christian, all of us, every day, live with someone who is like this. Because if you are a Christian, you live with your God and Father, and his ways are complicated. His ways are confusing. When there is a straight line from A to B, it often seems that God takes us through every letter of the alphabet before we get to B. Right? It's hard to know what he's doing. In our lives, in the lives of our family, our children, our parents. But, but the Bible tells us that God is never complicated accidentally. Right? God is never complicated ignorantly, as if he couldn't fi figure out a better way to do it. God is always complicated on purpose. Right? He's always fulfilling his purposes and his time and in his way. And our text this morning is a good example of what I'm talking about. 
Here are Mary and Joseph. They're living with Jesus in Bethlehem, where he had been born. Everything appears nice and cozy. But out of the blue, they are visited by uh, these wise men, this group of travelers from this other country. And and these wise men give them these incredibly uh, valuable gifts. And suddenly everything changes for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Joseph is told to flee to Egypt because Herod is about to seek the child's life to destroy him, to kill him. They're able to escape. But all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions don't escape. They are killed. They go down to Egypt and soon Herod dies and Joseph hears in another dream that he's dead and that he can go back to Israel. So he does. But when he gets there, he hears that this particularly vicious son of Herod, Archelaus, is, is reigning in Herod's place in Judea. And so he's, he's afraid and he's, he's warned in a dream that he needs to to leave and withdraw. And so he goes up to Joseph and Mary's hometown of Nazareth. Now, you read this story and you you think about it. Why didn't God just tell Joseph in a dream to go to Nazareth? If that's where he wanted him to be in the end. Why make them travel to Egypt? And why permit the murder of all these infants? And why this two-stage return journey? back to Nazareth. Maybe you've had questions like this about your own life, about the complications and the confusions of of your own journey. Lord, why did you take me all the way through these meanderings just to get me here? Now, chances are you, you haven't gotten answers to those questions to your satisfaction. Um, But we do get answers as we look at this story, don't we? We get some answers with regard to Jesus's childhood. Matthew tells us here in this text that these things happened to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's prophetic word. And like in our own lives, as it is with all of God's complicated providences, had they not happened, we would not have learned what God teaches us through them. And this morning, we learn much God teaches us much through Joseph, through Herod, and through Jesus' infancy. And I want us to to see what we learn through God's complicated providences in the lives of these characters in the stories. First, think with me about Joseph. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about Joseph, does it? it? It seems pretty clear that Joseph is dead before Jesus dies on the cross, but he he definitely was alive when Jesus was 12, as as we'll see soon in Luke 2. Matthew 13 tells us that he had lived long enough to father with Mary four brothers to Jesus. And and the text in Matthew 13 refers to all of Jesus' sisters. You're like, okay, all means at least one, two, you know, at least three or four. What does all mean, right? But it's, it's more than two, you know? So that many children have been born after Jesus. So that's how long you know, Joseph had been alive. Uh, the, the New Testament tells us that he was the carpenter. That's how he was known. Uh, Jesus in, in Mark 6 is also called the carpenter. So it seems that Jesus had, had worked with his father at some point uh, in his adult life. Right? Joseph had taught his son uh, that trade and they had worked together. But, but Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2 are, are all the narrative we have about Joseph. But even from this brief narrative, we see how good God was 
to give his son Jesus a father, an earthly father like Joseph. For in Joseph, we see what a godly man, what a godly father ought to be. Notice a few of those things even here in our own text. First, we see Joseph's immediate obedience. We already saw this, didn't we, in chapter 1, when an angel of the Lord commanded him to take Mary as his wife, and he did so. But his immediate obedience is even clearer here in verses 13 and 14. An angel tells him in a dream to get up, to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt to escape murder, Herod's murderous plan. And notice what the text tells us. He gets up that night, that very night, that moment. He immediately obeys. He's not like Lot who, back in Genesis 19, when the angels told him to flee Sodom, the text tells us he hesitated. He, he had to literally be grabbed by the hand and brought out by the angels. No, Joseph here in this story obeys immediately that very night. They grabbed their bug out bag and, and all that they could load onto their donkey and they clopped their way the 75 to 90 miles down from Bethlehem to Egypt. We see the same immediate obedience, don't we, in verses 19 to 21 as he comes back to Israel from Egypt. You see, Joseph was a man who knew that delayed obedience is disobedience. He was quick to do what God had told him in his word to do. He didn't do it when he felt like doing it. He didn't do it when it made sense to him to do it or whenever he got around to doing it. He obeyed immediately when God commanded him. And he obeyed even when it was uncomfortable and costly. Something as simple as he probably would have loved to have gone back to sleep that night. But that very night, he got his family up and they obeyed the angelic command. So here is Joseph, a man who immediately obeyed God. But we see a second thing about Joseph in this story. He has a godly fear that, that, that leads him to protect his family from the danger of evil. Right? Not only does he flee from Herod's approaching soldiers, but when he returns to Israel and he realizes that Archelaus is, is governing, has been put over Judea, all the southern part of Israel, he's afraid to stay there, the text tells us. And, and God confirms in a dream that, that his, his fear is wise, is righteous. It's the sort of fear that you would have, that you should have if you were hiking and, and came upon a grizzly bear or a, a black bear cub all by itself, right? It's a right fear. The, the word that's translated departed in verses 12 and 13 and 14 and, and withdrew in verse 22, the same word, it has this, the, the sense of retreating, right? Of, of taking refuge from danger, withdrawing from, from that which is dangerous. Joseph knew that it was right to, to avoid evil altogether, to be concerned with his family's safety. Think about these things. Immediate obedience, a, a, a right and, and wise fear of danger and evil. What a model Joseph would have been for Jesus as he grew up and, and heard these stories of his own childhood. Think about your own earthly fathers. Right? Think of the, the things that you remember and even seek to imitate from your earthly fathers, the, the, the way they did things or the things they actually did. Even if your earthly fathers were not believers in Jesus, even if there are maybe more things that you strive to avoid than to imitate, yet there's still something that you do because you saw it or you heard about it from your father. Well, how much more? Jesus, seeing Joseph, hearing of these stories of Joseph. And men, 
fathers here in this room, what a model God has given us in the person of Joseph. Right Through this circuitous journey from Israel to Egypt and then back again to Israel and then up to northern Israel and Nazareth, this complicated way, God is teaching us how to be men. He's teaching us how to be fathers. Do you listen to the word of God and do it immediately, right away, all the way? Do you demonstrate to your own children that, that God's commands are not to be obeyed whenever we feel like it or if it makes sense to us or at our leisure, if it only just doesn't give us too much comfort, discomfort or uh, too much complication, right? We are to obey God immediately. We are to follow him. Right? Do we see it as a part of our calling to protect our families physically and spiritually? Well, to be sure, as our children grow up, some of that responsibility is, is handed off to them. They are responsible for uh, their own lives to make wise decisions for themselves as they live in a fallen world. But especially when our children are young, as fathers, as, as husbands, as men, we are called to oversee what they're doing, right? To, to oversee what are they reading? What are they watching? What are they listening to? Who are they spending time with? What are the things they're doing with their time? Whether in person or online, we are to be the protectors of our family. It's so easy, isn't it? After a long day at work, right, to just say, I'm not going to worry about these things, or I'm just going to delegate that, abdicate that all to my wife. But we are called to be the leaders in our family, men, even as Joseph. What a wonderful picture of godly manhood we have here in Joseph. How to be a shepherd leader in our home. That's the first thing God's going to teach us here in this story, in this complicated journey. He's going to give us this beautiful picture of of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. But now let's go to the opposite extreme of, of Joseph. Let's, let's think about Herod. Herod, he's Satan's tool, isn't he? To try to kill Jesus, to stop God's plans from coming to pass. And Herod, we see Psalm 2 being played out in living color. You remember those opening lines? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. That's Herod. He was a ruthless king. He had before this murdered his Jewish wife. He had murdered her two sons. He had murdered others who were suspected of, of, of having aspirations to his throne. And so it's not surprising that when he goes from being the deceiver to being the deceived with regard to the wise men, he is filled with rage and he slaughters all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. And your commentators think probably given the size that Bethlehem would have been, maybe between 10 and 20 and 30, you know, children were killed. That's not surprising. But what is surprising, and as you've read this text in the past, maybe you've asked this question, what is hard to come to grips with is why God would permit this heinous evil. Why would God allow, as a part of his decree, these children to be murdered? That's a question we've all struggled with at some point about something, whether it's evil injustice that we see in the, the world around us or whether it's evil and injustice that we have experienced in our own lives ourselves. But God doesn't always answer those questions to our satisfaction, does he? He certainly didn't answer Job. He didn't answer Habakkuk to their satisfaction. But both men, Job and Habakkuk and others throughout the Bible, were given grace by God to submit to his providence, 
to his inscrutable and painful providence. And likewise, we too ultimately are called to bow the knee before God's holy, wise, and powerful sovereignty, even when life doesn't make sense. We're called to believe with Paul that all things will indeed work together for good to God's people. But in our text this morning, Matthew's narrative points us in some additional directions, right? Beyond just saying, hey, God is sovereign. We need to submit to that. That is true. That is biblical. That is right. That's where we often have to fall upon. But, but in our text, we, we see some other directions that help us to deal with injustice and suffering in our own life. As hard as this story is, there's actually great hope in this story. First, Notice that though Herod causes these infants to die, the text tells us that Herod himself dies. The one who uses wicked means to cause uh, his reign to continue, right? There was a limit to his wickedness. His days were numbered. He received the death that he deserved both in this life and for all eternity. What does Psalm 2 go on to say he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You see, God holds tyrants between his thumb and his little finger. They will be brought to justice. Their acts of wickedness will be rewarded with God's judgment. For the King of kings, the Son of God, Jesus, the anointed Christ, he has appeared to conquer all injustice. And Herod's death reminds us of that truth. But there's a second thing that we see about Herod's life that encourages us, that ought to encourage us and give us hope. Though Herod sought to defy God's purposes by destroying the Christ child, Notice that by God's sovereign providence, he actually only fulfilled God's word by his wicked actions and by the sorrow that they caused. You see it there in verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we have to be careful here, don't we? Certainly, God is not the author or the approver of Herod's sin. He's not responsible for Herod's sin. We, in fact, we, we notice that Matthew's formula for the, the, the Bible quotation here in verse 17 and 18 is actually different uh, than the other quotations in this text. It's just a, a simple passive voice. There is no language of this happened in order to fulfill the, the prophet. It just says it was fulfilled. As we're about to see, those other actions happen to fulfill God's saving purposes. Whereas this one, contrary to them, are still fulfilling the scriptural pattern that is set out for us. My point is this, even in Herod's wickedness, as Joseph had learned long ago, the other Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, what men mean for evil, God means for good. Herod sought to kill Jesus, to stifle and stop God's plans. And he found that all he actually did was fulfill God's word. He fulfilled God's word. 
God meant it for good. Now it's that fulfillment that is the third way we see hope from Herod's life and from this story. That fulfillment from Jeremiah chapter 31 is Matthew speaking to us the same hope and comfort that Jeremiah had spoken to God's people of old, you see. This verse that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31 is a poignant verse of of sorrow that weaves together several themes. It mentions Rachel. Now, who is Rachel? Rachel was Jacob's wife, right? And in the book of Genesis, we read of Rachel dying while giving birth to Benjamin, but she dies as Jacob is journeying to Bethlehem, and she is buried near where Ramah would have been located. Rachel was weeping. Do you remember what she named Benjamin? Jacob gave him the name Benjamin. She named him Ben-Oni, that is, the son of my suffering. She gives birth while she's weeping, weeping for her own self, about to die. In Jeremiah's day, the reason that Jeremiah mentioned Rachel weeping in Ramah was because in Ramah, near Bethlehem, in that same vicinity, Ramah was the place, Jeremiah tells us, where the the Babylonians were bringing all the children of Israel before they would send them into exile. And so here are the, 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 the Israelite mothers weeping for their children who are going off into exile. And, and Jeremiah personifies that weeping with Rachel, who had wept herself back in the book of Genesis. Now, why does Matthew point to this verse? Well, did you notice as we read Jeremiah 31 that this was the only verse in chapter 31 that was a verse of sorrow. That was a verse of hopelessness. The rest of the chapter was what? It was filled with hope. It was filled with joy. Uh, Jeremiah is assuring the weeping mothers of his day that there is a hope for their future. That those who are mourning now will be filled with joy as the children of Israel will return from exile. And what Matthew is doing by quoting this verse in relation to what Herod had done to these mothers in Bethlehem, Matthew is saying, in the midst of this grief, in the midst of this tragedy, don't you see the hope, the joy of the fact that that the new age of the new covenant prophesied there in Jeremiah 31, that new covenant has come in Jesus Christ. Specifically, those who grieve and suffer injustice with faith, you have hope. Because Jesus, he was protected from Herod's wrath. He was spared from Herod's wrath in order to be preserved to endure God's wrath on the cross some 33 years later. Yes, Jesus was born to die, but not at this time. And not in this way. Jesus had to grow up. Jesus had to live a life of obedience and then to lay down his life voluntarily, willingly, to make atonement for our sins. On the cross, the injustice of man and the sovereignty of God and the justice of God and the grace of God meet together. And in our suffering, As we look to the cross, we have the clearest answers 
Think about what the church said in Acts 4. Here are the Jews and the Romans who are killing Jesus unjustly. But the church in Acts 4 acknowledged that they were only doing what God's hand and purpose had predestined to occur. And so in our own suffering, in our own enduring of injustice, we are able to, to look to, to Rachel weeping, to the women in Ramah weeping, to the women in Bethlehem weeping. We can look to Jeremiah 31 and we can remember that there is hope for those who weep. Because Jesus was spared in order to suffer on the cross under the sovereign providence of God. And what does Paul say in Romans 8? God who spared not his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God is sovereign, even over the injustice of the cross, how much more is he sovereign over my own suffering and pain and injustice? How will he not also freely with Jesus give all things needful to me? So do you see how God is teaching us, even through Herod and through the events of, of Herod's uh, murderous rage? But through his word in Jeremiah, he is saying, there is hope for you who suffer. Well, all this talk about Jesus brings us to our final point, to Jesus' infancy. For you see, Matthew's ultimate desire is that you would know the Son of God that you would know who Jesus is, that you would know what Jesus has done, particularly, as we've just seen, as it is made known through the Old Testament prophecies and, and types that Jesus fulfills even in the story of his infancy. And so we can ask the question, who is Jesus? Who does this passage teach us that Jesus is? Well, first it says Jesus is the new Moses. Did you hear the echoes of those early chapters of Exodus when Pharaoh and his rage wanted to kill all the infant males in Egypt. And now Herod in his rage wants to kill all the male Hebrew babies in Bethlehem. Jesus is the true Moses. Jesus is the true prophet of God. Jesus is the true lawgiver. The one who was born to accomplish an even greater exodus than Moses, the one who was born to deliver us from our slavery, not merely to Egypt, but to Satan, to sin and to death. Jesus is the true Moses, but he's also the true Israel. You see, Jesus's personal history here in his infancy is re recapitulating, repeating Israel's history, isn't it? Israel in the book of Exodus is called God's son, but Jesus is the true son of God. Just as God brought Egypt into, brought Israel into Egypt to save them from the famine, so God brings his son Jesus into Egypt to save him from this deranged King Herod. And as he called his son Israel out of Egypt, so he called his son Jesus out of Egypt. Matthew here quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you might scratch your head and, and wonder, was Hosea prophesying about Jesus in that verse? Because if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 11, you're like, this is, doesn't seem like he's talking about Jesus at all. And you're right. It's not a prophecy per se in the way that we think a direct prophecy of Jesus to come. Rather, it's a, it's a pattern. It's what we call a type. It's a picture. It's a, an event or, 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 or a person in the Old Testament that has a correspondence to, to something or to someone in the New Testament. It's like what we just saw in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Here, Matthew is realizing that God is clearly orchestrating the events of Jesus' life in order to teach us that Jesus is the new and the true Israel. He is the true vine that bears good fruit. He is the true son of God who embodies the faithful obedience that Israel never embodied. You see, if you go back to Hosea chapter 11, you will read of Israel's sin. You will read of the way that God lovingly called them out of Egypt. And yet they abandoned him. They rejected him. Jesus is the true son who always honors his father. He was the true Israel who was tempted in the wilderness, even as Israel of old was. And yet Jesus succeeds in the wilderness because he relies upon the word and the promise of God. He passes the test, unlike that wandering wilderness generation. And just as God loved Israel in spite of their sin and brought them back from exile, so God loves us in Christ. For Jesus had no sin. God loves his son perfectly. And in him, we who are sinners are loved in spite of our sin. And we are brought back through Jesus from an even more foundational exile, not just an exile physically, but a spiritual exile far from God, brought back to the Lord through Jesus Christ, the true son. This is who Jesus is. He's the new and true Moses. He's the new and true Israel. And finally, he is the despised Nazarene. This is a fascinating verse. Matthew tells us at the end of this passage that, that Jesus grew up in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, maybe you've read this before and you've scratched your head and you're like, what Bible verse is this referring to? Well, you notice that the ESV doesn't actually put it in quotations. And you notice that Matthew speaks here not just of a prophet, but of the prophets. And you can't really see this in, in, in the English, but in the Greek, there's a word omitted there in verse 23 that's in all the other prophecies. All the other prophecies, it says, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying. But that word saying is actually omitted in verse 23. What, what seems clear is that, that Matthew is not referring to any one specific text, but rather to a general theme that we find in the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, chapter 49 and 53. Prophets like David in Psalm 22. This theme that Jesus in his suffering and his humiliation would be despised, would be rejected by men. Jesus was called a Nazarene. We know from the Gospel of John that Nazareth was a little podunk, obscure town. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament at all, right? Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet that was the city that Jesus was from. We might put it this way today, that Jesus would be called a Cajun, a redneck, right? backwoods, a hick. Right? I'm an Italian, so I'll say this about myself, you know, a wop, a dago, right? that Jesus would be called the names that I probably couldn't say, right, in good company in church publicly, the names of despising and derogatory names, right, names of putting people down. He's a Nazarene. Jesus is a Nazarene. Why would we want to follow him? What sort of king is a Nazarene, right? Now, if he was a Bethlehemite, if he had, been, if he had grown up in Bethlehem, oh, he's from the city of David. 
but he's from this Gentile area in the north. He's from Nazareth. Who's ever heard of Nazareth? It's like hot coffee, Mississippi. Sorry if you're from there, right? You know, it's like, he's from where? And he's the king? He didn't have the right pedigree, the right schools, the right family, right? the right resume. He was humble. He was rejected. From his infancy, his early childhood, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And what does that mean? But that he is just the right kind of savior that we need in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our grief. Jesus has come, and even in his hometown, by the providence of God, Jesus is one who can sympathize with us in our weakness, who can sympathize with us in all of our sorrow. He comes as the suffering servant to bear our sorrows, to carry our griefs, to take those griefs even to the point of the shame of the cross. And he does it for our salvation. He was a humble king, But he's a king nonetheless. How does Psalm 2 end? If you don't kiss the son, his wrath will soon be revealed. He has a holy wrath, a holy anger against all who refuse to bow the knee to him. But the psalm ends this way. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Jesus is a king who's Wings and whose arms are big, who will protect us, who can understand us and all that we're going through, who is sovereign over it all. He is the King of Kings who shelters us with mercy, with grace. This is who Jesus is. He's the new Moses. He's the new Israel. He is the despised Nazarene. In all of our complication, in all of our life's meandering journeys, Jesus is reigns and he rules and he is with us to give us the grace and the strength that we need day by day. Come to him if you do not know him. Trust in him. And if you do know him, then look to him all the more. Lean upon him and not your own understanding and he will make your path straight. Let's pray together. Oh Lord our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about Joseph, about Herod, about Jesus, about all your complicating ways with us. Oh Lord, we thank you for this story and the way that you brought Jesus from Israel to Egypt, to Israel to Nazareth. Oh Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are our suffering servant, that you know what it is to endure oppression, injustice, sorrow, grief. Lord, would you make us those who would rejoice in the fact that you have dealt with all of our sins on the cross, and that you are in control and in charge of everything. Lord, we love you. Be with us this day, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen.